Welcome to Atomic Moms, a modern parenting podcast about the joys and complexities of caring for our children and ourselves. I'm Ellie Noss, and since 2014, we've been celebrating and commiserating with world-class experts like today, best-selling authors, and moms around the world. Hi, everyone. Today, we are helping out mamas with so much information from this new book, Now Say This, The Right Words to Solve Any Parenting Dilemma. I've got the authors in studio, and we're going to be tackling whining, tantrums, sibling relationships, and especially for me, playground drama. Heather Turgeon is a psychotherapist who specializes in helping families with sleep, as well as other parenting issues. Her work has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Salon, among others. Julie Wright is a psychotherapist specializing in babies, children, and their parents in groups, private practice, and sleep consults. She created the curriculum and approach for the popular Write Mommy and Me class in Los Angeles, which focuses on empathic, mindful parenting and topics following babies' development throughout their first year. P.S. everybody, this is my first time meeting Julie, but Sabrina, my four-and-a-half-year-old, and I took it with another instructor at the pump station, and I made some of my closest mom friends from that experience. So, Julie, let's start off. You all have the three-step approach to effective communication. Can you please give us, like, the sleepy, scatterbrained mom summary of the ALP approach. Absolutely. It's interesting that you mentioned Mommy and Me because this approach really grew out of Mommy and Me when we realized that around seven to nine months, moms were coming in and saying, whose baby is this? You know, <laughs> literally, whose baby is this? My baby used to love getting his diaper changed. My baby used to, you know, have no problem if I had to take something out of her hands. My baby, you know, never was reaching for all these things, couldn't crawl. I didn't have to do all these things that now I have to stop her or make her do this, or she's having all these strong opinions. So parents were facing actually having to limit set with a seven, eight, nine-month-old baby, and they just weren't prepared for that. And so we thought, why not start then? with how to respond to them and help parents learn a way to set limits that leads with empathy. So ALP, ALP is attune, limit set, problem solve. And it's much easier to do with your seven-month-old than it is with your tantruming three-year-old. Or as I was practicing last (laughs) night with my four-and-a-half-year-old. Four-and-a-half-year-old. I wanted to just like wave this book in front of her face and be like, I'm ALPing. <laughs> and it's not working. <laughs> no, it wasn't. Well, I can share, I'll share about that later. But it was, it did work. Okay, so yes, starting young. Start young if you can, right? If you can. It's never it's, too late. It's never too late. So that's the the gist of ALP. And attune, limit set, problem solve. And this goes for babies through spouses. Like up in, I mean, I've practiced on my 40-year-old husband, right? It, it, <laughs> it really goes for anyone in your life. We wrote the book for babies through school age specifically, but the approach, the way of being around difficult moments, you can use it on strangers, you can use it on your husband, you can use it on your mother-in-law, you can use it on everybody, you can use it on groups of people. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. And we wanted to find a way that was simple. You know, here, here we were with parents of these young babies and 
there's a lot of great info out there, but some of it is 12 steps or seven steps mm-hmm. or this kind of thing. So took a lot of great information about mindful parenting and distilled it into three steps. And I have yet to find a real difficult moment that I can't apply the three steps to. So, And for mamas out there who are wondering, like, well, what what is it about an eight-month-old or what what could they be doing that you would need to use this for? My daughter, Sabri- my daughter, Sabrina, I've got two, everyone, I've lost my mind. Eliza, <laughs> the little one, I think that's her name, uh, she has been pulling hair and that's been a big thing in our um, the class we're in right now, that the babies want to pull each other's hair. So can you give us a quick example of like what to say in that scenario if a little baby's pulling, let's say, her big sister's hair? Yeah, I love this example because if we just say no or move her hand away, she may learn that she's not allowed to do that. But if we start by letting her know that we understand what she's trying to do, she's not trying to hurt anybody. At that age, they're really just interested in exploring, and they have so little modulation that they tend to pull or sometimes pinch skin or even even hit in a way that you know they don't understand, that it's hurtful. It's mostly exploratory. So if we start by letting her know that we understand what she's going for— she starts to feel really held and heard and listened to and felt. And then the next, that's the A step, letting her know, Eliza, you really want to touch mommy's hair or so-and-so's hair. That's the A step. You're attuning to what she, her intentions are, what she's feeling, what she's wanting. The next step is the limit setting step. And it's a very It's a statement of fact. It's not okay to pull hair because that hurts people. We like to put a reason why so that over time our children know we're not just issuing rules. We're explaining the world to them. And then the problem-solving step would be, let me show you how to touch. And then you take their hand and you show them how to touch hair And with anything like gentle touch, we generalize it. So we take their hand and we touch our hair, and then we take their hand and touch their hair and maybe someone else's hair, and then we touch their hair with our hand. So the more we generalize it, the more quickly they learn what gentle touch means. My Atomic Moms co-founder, actress Bianca Kylick, came up with And so we end every episode with trust in your goodness, live out your greatness, rock on, Atomic Moms. Like, I can't not say the whole thing. So, (laughs) Heather, I was really struck by this phrase that you guys have in this book where you say, children are built for good. And so I'm wondering if you could share with us why that's so important for us to keep in mind and how remembering that our children are built for good can help us, like, keep from running for the hills? (laughs) Yeah, I think it's such a good question. And this is one of my favorite parts about this book when we really step back and think about what our goal is as parents and see our children through the lens of not misbehaving. Like we really, Julie and I truly believe that, that, you know, kids are not misbehaving or being bad. They are little people figuring out a big world. And when there's a difficult moment, shifting your focus from what is, you know, how can I get this person to stop doing what they're doing? Or how can I get them to, you know, do what I'm telling them to do and think about 
what are they trying to do? Because they are, that is a good person trying to figure out whatever situation that is. So if you start with that lens, I really feel like it, it, then it leads you to something that is much more meaningful for the, for the child and for your connection with the child. So shifting the focus to like, what, what developmental skill is this person or, or either what desire do they have that I can attune to before I help them, you know, before I set the limit or I problem solve, or what are they working on in their little brains that I can have empathy for? Like, this is a three-year-old who has very little impulse control. That makes sense because they're three. And, you know, if I see it that way, or I see a flooded tantrum, like, you know, I, I have a six-year-old who is not far from the age of like, just, I mean, things can, like the smallest thing can just lead to a complete meltdown. And if I literally just look at her and think, wow, what is going on in her little brain? She must be flooded with a feeling because her brain is still developing this ability to regulate her emotions. I have so much more empathy for her and I can let it be okay. And so I think that that, that focus on this is a, a good person. How can I support this, you know, growing budding little person rather than how can I get them to do what I want them to do or to make this difficult moment go away is so, it's just relieving and it's helpful. Julie, do you have anything to add to that? Well, yeah. I mean, we love the idea of children innately being good, meaning they want to help. They want to be part of a family. They want to be seen as capable and they want to be kind. And rather than shaping them from the outside and trying to control them, it's almost like watering a plant, you know, and giving that plant room to grow and giving it support. And we have a, an image that we use called scaffolding, which means that you imagine your child is like the building and you're the scaffolding. And when the child is young, it needs more scaffolding more support, more help from you figuring things out. And as they grow, you start to take the scaffolding down. But the starting point of really being curious about who your child is and how you can give their innate sense of goodness room to grow is key. Mm -hmm. What do I do? And either of you are welcome to attempt to answer this. <laughs> My four and a half year old Sabrina has always had this little mischievous twinkle in her eye and it's fabulous. And she's, I'm not going to spend this whole episode bragging about her. People can just listen to the 180 episodes to find out more about her. She's awesome. She does have the twinkle in her eye though. And she does like to test limits and there were times, even when she was like two years old, where she wanted to be mean to be mean. And so she was like trying something on. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that, because I know there are a lot of parents listening that are like, oh, yeah, that's great for everyone else who has these kids like my Eliza, where it's just like everyone looks at her and they're like, oh, my God, she's such a Buddha baby. She's a magic baby. And then some kid people have amazing children like Sabrina, where you're like, she's awesome and she's a handful. Well, I think that when when kids are mean to each other, I, I do really think that that's, that is a little social experiment. Mm -hmm. Like think of them like little scientists. They're like little lab. They're conducting a little lab experiment. They're like, if I do this, what is the reaction that I get? And that's part of them developing social skills, right? That some of them um, have that innate sort of um, tendency to, to test limits or whatever it mm -hmm. is. I mean, I, I, 
um, I would say that one could definitely see where that's going to come in handy later in life. Oh, like, yeah. I know what I want and I'm going to make it happen. Oh, yes. <laughs> no, watch out world. Right. But, okay, kids playing with each other. Okay, so my four-and-a-half-year-old, she's got a gang of boy friends that are boys, and it's such a breeze. If I do play dates with this group, I don't have to do anything. I can just, like, eat all the food that's put out for the kids. And she (laughs) (laughs) – she, but when it's play date with a girl, there's, like – she likes to cast the parts, right? Like she wants to be in control and she wants to cast the parts. And if the other little girl doesn't want to do what she wants her to do, then she gets mad and says she's not going to play anymore. So how can I finesse that scenario? Yeah, that's a really good one. And issues around power are really common. She's used to being spending most of her time at home with her parents and having more power over how play goes. And now she has peers playing with her. So it's it's a completely understandable thing that she would, as you say, try on this, not to see like what I could get, but I mean, I think it's a natural human desire yeah. to want to be in control and have things go your way. <laughs> so what we one of our jobs as parents is to is to teach our children social skills mm-hmm. and kind of going back to that idea of innate goodness, they they will feel through our help that it feels good to be inclusive and it feels good to be curious about what the other person wants. It takes years. It yeah. takes years. It's not It's not quick. But one of the things we write about in the sibling chapter is how to use ALP not only to help two children um, let them know that we understand what they're each feeling, but to really over time gradually help them learn to understand each other and to communicate their limits and boundaries with each other. It's a long, messy, complex process, but it's it's not just, even though we wrote it as a simple to follow and remember approach, it really is more like a practice. It's it's a practice that you have to just, if you if you want to, you have to be very kind to yourself and know that things are not always going to go smoothly. But what you're teaching your children is this way of approaching difficult moments with curiosity and with interest in what the other person's feeling and also an ability to know what you're feeling and an ability an ability to express that. I think in the case of peer conflict, one of my favorite techniques is called the sportscaster. Mm-hmm. So if you imagine yourself like a radio sportscaster and you're not judging, you're not, you don't have a team, but you're, you're narrating what's happening. It can help kids um, figure things out for themselves or at least see it sort of like describes and opens the discussion for what's going on without you jumping in to solve it. I love you guys talk about the bumbling parent technique. Bumbling parent it's in that moment where it's time for the problem-solving step and you really want your kids to do what we just talked about, which is you really want to hand over the role of solving the dilemma to them as they, as they become capable. So as the parent, you act like you're not sure what the solution could possibly be. And of course, you have tons of ideas. And it's not really meant to be comical. It's really meant to, to be kind of like, hmm could we do here? I don't know. And you could even say, 
if they don't come up with something, you could you could put out some thoughts like hmm, maybe this or maybe that. But the idea is that you give them space. You don't rush in, like you said, mm. with your controlling ways. Our, My you agenda. know, as parents, it's, it's a very huge right. desire to want to control our kids. It's very normal. I used this technique for years because obviously Sabrina, especially, she lights up when she gets to be in control and, you know, have the solutions. (laughs) Then I realized she started thinking I was a real (laughs) dum-dum. Real bumbling. So where where is that line between saying, and I don't think other parents... (laughs) would have this issue. I think it's just something that, um, that you know, with my tool set, I get to work through. But what, what, what do I, where do I go with Sabrina? You know, I'm, what do you, what do you think would be a good idea? I, I am having a really hard time figuring this out and getting a solution, but like where she doesn't then think like, who is this moron who's supposed to be captain of the ship? Well, you're still going to hold your limits. Like this okay. is only the problem solving step. So Ooh, you're, like this. you've got your limit, whatever it is, you know, about the, let's say, I don't know. I mean, any family rule or any clear mm-hmm. limit that you've set, you're going to stay strong in that and clear about it. But it's kind of wonderful because you can be both at the same time. You can be that, well, hmm, it's, you know, because we never have toys at the table. And hmm, so that's a family agreement. Like, you know, it's kind of like, I'm not caving on that. That is what it is. So, hmm, what could we do? I guess, you know, you could park your toys on the other side of the room or we could, you know, it's kind of like I'm giving, I'm giving you the feeling that this is a collaboration, but really I'm also stating a very clear limit that you know you can trust because I don't waver on it. It's both. It's that balance. Let's tackle whining. All right. Let's hit it. (laughs) Give us some tips. We're stopping the madness. <laughs> I feel like, wow, whining is, it's so, I, you know, I have, I have little kids too. So I feel like when people give advice about whining, it's, it feels a little like, no, you don't understand. Like, <laughs> no, it's not just the whining. It's the constant whining. Like it's the, the, the duration of it. And sometimes it can feel like it's like, have you said a word, like a clear word in the last <laughs> hour or has this, you know, so it's a little like sometimes advice about whining, I feel like can seem a little surface because you're like, no, but the, the irritation that builds up as a parent over time, you know, like your well of patience yeah. just gets very low. But in general, I really like to say, I hear you have it. You're having a feeling about something. I can get that you're trying to tell me something, but I can't really understand what you're trying to tell me. Can you use clear words or can you use your normal voice? because I want to help you. That's the idea that that's the feeling you want to give them is like, I, I really want to help you, but I can't understand. Can you use your normal voice for me so I can help you? And you're also giving them the feeling that, you know, that they're, whatever they're struggling with is okay with you. You're not trying to make it go away, but you do want to hear the information in a clear way so you can help them, so you can understand them. I love the the idea running throughout the book of like, you know, you're, you're being a you're being collaborative with your child, but also you're like, you're standing by them through thick and thin. And there was one moment, I can't remember the quote, but basically saying that like, if you're with a child through a tantrum, you're showing them that you're, you're staying by their side. And so last night I had just finished the book 
And my my parents were in town, and Sabrina had been having a really great day. And she came downstairs naked and <laughs> after the bath because she wanted to get attention and feeling she, herself. She was feeling herself. She, yeah. <laughs> so she came down, and then I was like, Sabrina, we got to go upstairs and put on your clothes. You got to put on your clothes. You have to wear your clothes downstairs. She's like, no. And then she she swiped at me, and I was like, oh. What would Julie and Heather do? So I was like, okay, at that moment, attuning, I didn't have a, I'll do, I said, I did an internal attunement. Okay. Like I knew what she, I knew that it was because she was tired. I knew she was excited about the grandparents. I knew she was, she's a real shock jock. And so I knew where she was coming from. But I also knew that she had just swiped at me, so I didn't have time. I wasn't going to, like, kneel down and be like, I know you're da-da-da, which I will do sometimes. This wasn't the moment. So I pick her naked butt up, (laughs) 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 and I carry her up the stairs, which in the past I probably would have done a lot more negotiating because I said we're going upstairs. Told her, picked her up, carried her up the stairs. We go into her room put her down and then she'll do this thing where she'll she gets like crazy eyes because she just goes into flight or fight. Mm-hmm. She's very excited too and she almost thinks it's a game and so maybe some parents out there understand what I'm talking about where I'm like she's half laughing but you know she's like an inch away from a total meltdown. Mm-hmm. And so it was difficult to keep her in her room. How can I contain this situation? How do I stay super calm? And connected to her. And how do I recognize that she's in flight or fight? And I love your tip from Dan Siegel about your eye contact being lower than them. Like, that was really great. I got down on my knees and I looked up at her. And then we had this moment where I said, you know, you're not allowed to be downstairs without your clothes. Let's get your clothes on. And you're not allowed to hit me. It took a moment, but then she melted and she goes... I don't know why I do that sometimes to people I love. Oh, and I was wow. like, oh, I love you so much. Now put on your underwear. Good but, job. <laughs> yeah, good for you. Wow. That's and awesome. And then we got to go back downstairs. And then, bonus, huge perk, everybody, for the rest of the evening, she kept checking in with me. You know, she'd be like, I'm, I'm going to do this. Is, you know, suddenly I was like, oh, this is what it feels like to be top dog. Mm. I really like this. <laughs> Isn't so, that interesting how it's it's so counterintuitive that if you lower her defenses by getting at her level or below and you're not signaling that you're a threat or that you're trying to force her and you and she feels like you understand her, it's like counterintuitive. She's much more receptive to hearing what you have to say. She's not defensive anymore. That's really awesome. Yeah, I actually think that by internalizing the attuned step that she felt it. Mm. Children mm-hmm. feel They feel our intentions, even if we don't say a word. So by the time you picked her up and got her into her room and knelt down, you had already done the attuned step. We don't always have to speak. She knew Mm -hmm. that you were there to help her. She knew that you were on her team. She knew that, that you were not there to reprimand or judge or make her feel bad. Right. But she also knew that you were going to hold the limit. So you did the win-win, and you didn't have to say a lot of words. That is, it's so cool about the attunement step. It just totally, it sets the stage so that you can have success. Because I could imagine, 
you know, if I, you know, like maybe if I had had her when I was younger, let's say, or if I hadn't done all this work through the podcast, I could see being really embarrassed or humiliated that my daughter would run downstairs and shake her butt in front of her grandfather, you know, like in or in other generations that that would have been such a big thing. And that could have been a real opportunity for shaming. And so to know who my daughter is like so intimately and to know what she's about and and to recognize, yeah, she's four and a half. Because especially with some of these kids that are so verbal and she she seems like she's has such a strong sense of self. I have to remind myself like four and a half. She hasn't been on this planet very long yeah. and she's just trying things out mm-hmm. and yeah. she's doing it for love. And she feels she feels that from you. I can also see the other side of the coin where a parent would have the level of empathy that you described, but not hold the limit. That happens to me sometimes. Yeah. So it's there's a bummer. <laughs> it, there's both sides. So can we talk a little bit more about limit setting? Can you give advice to our mamas? Because I, I from interacting with our listeners, God, we just did it. Our 177th episode, I interviewed 17 listeners about motherhood Ooh, for our cool. Mother's Day episode. It was amazing. Wow. And we also, we have a Facebook uh, private group. And so just speaking to these moms, I know that they're totally on board about the attunement step. Um, I think if you're attracted to this podcast, like you're there. The limit setting is probably what some of us need a little more help with. So what advice do you have for the limit setting? Because it's hard to be the bad guy. Well, maybe just starting with the the fact that it, you know, children at babies and little kids um, feel contained and like they can trust the world when they have clear limits. So, they're not a bad thing and they're not just about stopping them from doing things or cutting off their impulses. Limits are really our way of, you know, helping kids understand the world. And when they know that there's when, because they're, they're, they are like little scientists. And so they're going to test and fig, try to figure out the world. And if we can give them really clear information, then it feels containing and it feels like, especially family rules, like the thing about, you know, we, we can't force our friends to do things. Or like I said, you know, we don't, um, we don't have toys at the table. We park our toys and for in our family, it's we, we um, park our devices because I have, you know, I have a 10 and a six-year-old. Um, so like my 10-year-old's on the iPad and I'm on my phone. Like we don't bring those things to the table. We have really clear limits about um, mealtime. So that's just one example of limits. But I feel like they feel that our family has this certain way of doing things. And we talk about it in that way of like, you know, remember our family X, Y, Z. And it makes them feel like this is our little tribe and we do things a certain way. And that feels good to them. And they feel mm-hmm. like they can trust that. Mm-hmm. It's a nice, it's, it's limits are a good thing. And um, I think that that's part of our that's part of what we do as parents to help our kids have a sense that the world is a good place and it makes sense. And if I do X, then Y happens if, you know, and that the limits will always be there and I can sort of always trust them, even though I might freak out and act like I don't want them. It actually feels good that someone is in charge. Yeah. Yeah. Limits. We also have an, uh, a feature of the limit setting step, which is called the, the reality step. And setting limits in families prepares our children for all those parts of life that we can't control. 
we can't control our friend who won't let us be the mom too. We can't force people. We can't control the rules at our school. We can't control just something that happened in life. You know, my helium balloon got away and now it's floating up to the sky and we can't get that back. So there are a lot of moments in a child's life where they don't have control over things and they can't have everything. So in addition to everything that Heather said, setting limits and and holding them consistently helps prepare our children for knowing that life has disappointments and life isn't perfect and life has bumps and that we recover from them. It's just a part of life. So you guys also have the Happy Sleeper book. Um, And so when you're saying that about limit setting, some of us go instead towards bribing. Um, I've been doing some bribing. And it's been working, <laughs> but I get that it's totally short term yeah. and I know I'm not supposed to do it, but let me tell you. Okay. So the four and a half year old, she will stay in her bed, but if she wakes up in the middle of the night, she'll yell for one of us until we come in. But when I bribe, like I owe her a chocolate popsicle after school today. <laughs> Classic. <laughs> it's like skim milk, whatever. Because um, <laughs> last night I was putting her to bed and I was like, I have a very important interview with these experts who are going to tell me not to bribe. So I need to bribe you into sleeping all night so that I can be bright eyed and bushy tailed. So what do I do? How do I keep her butt in bed? Mm-hmm. And not yelling for us because she's going to wake up that 10-month-old and then I'm going to lose it. Right. Right. Well, she's <laughs> she's four and a half. So has this been going on for a long time or is this new? No. Uh, on and off. It depends on the stage, I guess. What is f- important, I think, to share is that clearly she can do it because the past three nights that I've been bribing her, she's been doing it. You mean going back to sleep? Yeah, without us. Like if she has something that she wants, she's a she has the proper motivation. And just if I say the motivation is you're a big girl now, like she doesn't like that doesn't do it for her. She'd rather have daddy or mommy rub her back. And but, what would happen if you told her that if she yelled out to you in the night, you were not going to respond? What would happen? I think she would come in our room and then she'd start crying about being lonely. Mm-hmm. And I'd be freaked out that the baby was going to wake up. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if you if you jump started something with this bribing technique that you what like what's going to happen? Maybe if you stop bribing her, she might not wake up. Sleep is very conditioned and habitual, so mm-hmm. you might have just sort of like broken her out of a pattern. Oh, I'm, I'm just spinning this in a positive yes. way. Like maybe you right. just I didn't break the baby. Right? Maybe <laughs> like maybe now when you <laughs> that's going to be the title of my book, everybody. <laughs> I didn't break the baby <laughs> in one piece. Um, I just wonder if, yeah, because sleep, it, we are very conditioned and, we, and sleep is very much controlled by the internal clock. And like her brain was just activated at night from maybe a nightmare yeah. or maybe just because she was in light sleep. And then she got in this habit of calling you in. You yeah. might have just broken a little cycle here. That Hopefully. So I wonder what's going to happen when you say, maybe you shouldn't even mention not oh, bribing. Like, I, I just wonder if she's going to see. just see what happens when you stop. If she ever falls asleep since I'm letting her have a chocolate popsicle. <laughs> 
No, that's that's very very helpful. Okay, so why shouldn't we though for new listeners? Like why why is bribing uh, not the best technique? Well, we're actually writing something about rewards and punishments right now, and Heather can build on this. But rewards have this intrinsic quality of of making the person feel like there must be something not so good about what you want me to do if you have to give me a reward to do it. Mm. And we we talk a lot in The Happy Sleeper about helping children. Not You have to be careful with kids not to oversell anything because if you oversell something like how great it feels to get a good night's sleep, then <laughs> they they know. It's sort of like a reward. Yeah. They know that there must be something, you know, not that great about it. But just a very natural um understanding of that sleep feels good and that we love our beds and we feel cozy there and we're 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 in in control of our domain in our beds and sleep is pleasurable and this whole idea of sleep is not being a terrible lonely isolated thing you make me do every night that's so horrible so we really want to help kids feel like sleep is positive but we also want to hold limits and we'd have to find a way if she were to if you were to decide to dispense with the bribes and if she's old enough to get out of her room and get to your room, we'd have to come up with a technique where you very repeatedly, you know, walk her back to her bed, probably without any words, and and be ready to repeat it to the point where it's not enticing to get up anymore without judgment, without getting mm-hmm. angry, letting her know in advance the plan. Um, and that's we'd probably come up with some version of that. <laughs> I'm laughing because I'm, I'm having a f- flashback. I, I, <laughs> that is very helpful, by the way, obviously. Like, I, that's something that a lot of parents have to deal with. Luckily, Sabrina always preferred to just yell to us from her lair or whatever. <laughs> but <laughs> I'm laughing because I was, I didn't realize at the time that I was trying to give her a natural consequence when I'd be like, Mommy, when mommy doesn't get her sleep, she's really grumpy. <laughs> like, my natural consequence is like, your mother is going to be. Not the nicest the next day. I would also give her a rehearse, do some rehearsals with her before bed. Like say, okay, so, and this is if you decided that you were not going to do the bribing anymore. Well, I'm going to run out of popsicles. Yeah. Yeah. You'll have, or she'll run out of interest because she'll be like, yeah, popsicle. It's not quite good enough. Like what else you got? Exactly. (laughs) I know. Um, Oh my God. So you would want to say that you want to rehearse with her what she does in the middle of the night to feel comfortable. Like, you know, everybody's bodies wake up in the night. So if you wake up and you're, and we, you know your your covers have been kicked off. Let's let's rehearse what you might do to get them back. Mommy's going to get in your bed and kind of do it like let's see. I would pull my covers up like this, and okay. So and then what if you didn't have a if you you felt like you needed some water? Oh, your sippy cup is right here. So you're all set and like rehearse with her what she would do. And then what I like to do is have parents give some hugs and kisses to a stuffed animal and say like bear. You know, this is really important. Mommy's going to give you 10 hugs and 10 kisses so that if Sabrina wakes up in the night and she needs them, you have them. But you have to keep them really safe. Like, make it a real thing that she feels. I mean, my six-year-old still will be like, "Um, I think you only gave nine kisses to Bear. (laughs) So, like, she takes it really seriously. And I know it makes her feel confident in the middle of the night. Like, she's like, Bear is still here with me. He's got Mommy's kisses. So I think you need to do both sides of it where you're you're holding the limit, like Julie's saying, but you're also giving her some techniques to self-soothe. That's really important. Okay. One of you, I can't remember which, had the school performance. That's Julie. 
Julie, tell <laughs> us. Okay, because I have so. You know, our preschoolers have these end of year performances. I've seen on Instagram that a lot of the girls have been having their big dance recitals. And I have one girlfriend whose daughter is so, oh, she's so darling. And she had major stage fright. Yeah. And let's just say at the holiday performance, there were a couple kids that did not get up on stage. So for kids who have stage fright, what was the little trick you came up with well, in your own family? This was actually a way to describe ALP, all three steps, in a real life incident that happened when my son was in first grade. And um, it was early in the morning and trying to get out the door. He had to go to school. I had to go to work. And he seemed fine. He had eaten his breakfast. But all of a sudden, he got a tummy ache. And I knew he had a performance at school that day. So I had a pretty good idea, knowing him, that he was nervous about it. But I didn't have a lot of time. And I was so tempted to just say, you know, I know you're not sick. You you know, you have to go to school. Like, just buck up, you know. Yeah. But I I took the time to just talk to him about the performance because I asked him if he was thinking about it. And it took a while. I mean, kids don't just blurt out their feelings, you know, some do, but most, it takes a little time. But he eventually told me that he didn't want to to do the performance. That was, he didn't tell me how he felt about it. He just said he didn't want to do it. So I told him that I understood, you know, what that felt like and that it is kind of scary to get, get up in front of people and perform. And especially knowing him, because he's just not the performing type at all. And so... That was the attuned step, letting him know that I really did understand the feeling because I really do understand. And then I did the limit setting step, which was you do have to go to school. And I, I know you're not sick, so you do have to go to school. That's just the rule, you know. And sometimes when kids say things that aren't true, all you have to do is tell them that you know what's true and what's not. And then the problem-solving step, I, I asked him what would help, you know, help him get to school. And he asked me if I would stay with him until we, we, we told the teacher that he didn't want to do the performance. So I told him that I would walk in with him. And while we were driving there, I'm sure his brain was, was moving and he decided that you know, he was still trying to figure out a way because even bringing attention on him to tell the teacher he didn't want to do it was something he was not that comfortable with. So I came up with the idea, because this was literally going to be 100 kids up on mm -hmm. stage all singing the same song. Oh, yeah. That was it. I said, you know, what would you think about just not singing and just moving your lips? Because nobody would know. And he really liked that idea. It's so, so so funny, you know? And so he decided to, it made him feel fine to go up on stage with all the kids and just not sing. And so I'll, I'll just, I almost cry when I say this, but just remembering him like catching my eye and kind of, we had this little secret that I was the only one who knew that he wasn't singing. But the main point of that story is that I got underneath the tip of the iceberg. I didn't just see him being resistant to going to school. I didn't just see him as being difficult. I didn't just see him as messing up my morning. I, I got underneath to what he was really feeling. And that, 
those are the kind of moments we want to help parents have. What would you say to a parent who is thinking, but I should make my kids sing so that they, it's a, an opportunity for growth? I think I would maybe take a step back and think more in terms of like our job as parents is not to force our kids to to do things, but to to look at who they are and start from who they are and just increase their range of comfort by a little bit. Like we don't want to shelter them from ever being uncomfortable, but we don't want to throw them into the deep end. We want to look at who they are and go like, okay, well, this is her natural temperament. How can I help her just, just reach outside her comfort zone just a little bit? And that's different for every child. So there's not really a cookie cutter answer. It's more like if you know you have an introverted child, maybe even just being in a play date or, you know, like just the, just some basic things are like expanding that range. So, um, yeah, I think that's, yeah, that's the support of, of the understanding parent who knows their child. Dan Siegel talks about the intertwining of temperament, which is what we're born with and in this case, my son's natural temperament was not to be on stage, you know, performing. The intertwining of temperament with, he, he would say, attachment experiences. Mm-hmm. Well, he says that um, temperament intertwined with attachment experiences creates personality. And I'm, I'm a person who was just as reluctant and reticent and introverted and I will always be that way because that's the way I'm wired. But what you're seeing is my personality, which would be the the interaction between my temperament and all the experiences that I've had in my life. So we help our children take baby steps depending on where their starting point is. And loving and understanding your unique child is a huge part of, of the attuned step. Where can our listeners find you guys? Well, we, um, all of our social media is actually at The Happy Sleeper, which is the name of our first book. Our website is thehappysleeper.com. We love to hear from people through email. We have a contact at The Happy Sleeper email. The Happy Sleeper, and now say this, the right words to solve every parenting dilemma are available wherever books are sold. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Reach out to us on social media at Atomic Moms. Join our private Facebook community. All you have to do is answer a few questions. We love hearing from you all. Do you guys have three mom friends you should share this episode with? Do it. Please do it. Um, We're an independently run podcast, so we can focus on the topics that matter most to all of us, like this one today. So we especially appreciate your word of mouth. Until next week, trust in your goodness and your children's. Live out your greatness. Rock on, Atomic Moms. Atomic Moms.